This is exactly right. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan, your host. Our goal and mission at Parent Footprint is to create a loving world with more compassionate people, one parent and one child at a time. At Parent Footprint, we firmly believe the key to raising happy, healthy, engaged, and aware kids is for us parents to do the same, to seek happiness, health, engagement, and awareness in our own lives. By doing this, we believe that we can create a vision of successful parents with a foundation of awareness. Today's show is called Enough As She Is, how to help girls move beyond impossible standards of success to live healthy, happy, and fulfilling lives. I'm so excited to introduce our guest and author, Rachel Simmons, to the show, Rachel, beyond writing this book, which will be a bestseller, has also written two times New York Times bestsellers, Odd Girl Out and The Curse of the Good Girl. As an educator, Rachel teaches girls and women skills to build their resilience, amplify their voices, and own their courage so they and their relationships live with integrity and health. Rachel was the host of the PBS special, a Girl's Life, and her writing has appeared in the Washington Post, Atlantic Slate, and the New York Times. Rachel's a regular contributor to Good Morning America and appears often in the national media. Odd Girl Out was adapted into a highly acclaimed Lifetime television movie. Rachel lives in western Massachusetts with her daughter. Rachel, welcome to the show. Hey, Dr. Dan. As I mentioned briefly before, you have been in my head, and that is a good thing. Um, you have been in my head in two ways. I've been reading your words and also uh, trading off with listening to your voice speak your book to me. And I can't say enough how important this work, this book is, and how alarming the content is as a parent of two teenagers and a psychologist seeing lots of teenagers. So t tell us tell us how this came to be. Well, um, I've been working on a college campus for um, a number of years and do a lot of um, education with high school age girls and, and boys too, increasingly. And I was just noticing that a couple things. I mean, one, that my students work harder than I can frankly remember ever working myself in college. And at the same time that they're so ambitious and kind of structuring their lives with so many different activities, they also seemed to feel like nothing they ever did was enough. And they felt anxious. They felt overwhelmed. My colleagues would talk about this skyrocketing need for mental health and support services. And so it seemed like just as achievement and ambition were starting to rise in our young adults, we were also just seeing this huge decline in wellness. And so that was when mm -hmm. I began to really make a pivot in my teaching and start to work with students on, you know, how can you succeed but not give up your wellness? And these days, with social media, this image, this image presenting, I mean, this seems really difficult. I mean, very difficult. 
I think it is really difficult in the sense that it's hard to get young adults' attention because they're often so busy. But at the same time, my experience is that they really want help and they want also to know that they're not alone. I think one of the best things you can do for a teen is just tell them that other people are struggling just like you and this isn't your fault, that you're having trouble keeping up. Um, This is something that's happening culture-wide, something very wrong in our culture. And, um, and it's really critical to be a kid's ally, whether you're a parent or a teacher. And you talk about the impossible standards. So from your research and experience, what are the contributors that make up these impossible standards of success? Well, I think, you know, part of what girls are facing is in many ways sort of the darker side of um, all of the opportunity that they've had. So the standards are kind of what girls used to aspire to, which would have been things like, you know, wanting to be well-liked or wanting to be pretty, wanting to have a conventionally thin body. And there are also now some of the newer, more progressive standards that have come with all the opportunity we're giving girls. So now you've got to be a great scholar and you have to be a leader and you have to be a good athlete. And so part of the impossibility of the standards is not just what they are, but it's also how hard they are to achieve them in a 24 hour day. Like there's just not enough time to, you know, do everything it takes to get one like permitted on Instagram, but also do all the homework that you need to get into the college that you want to get into. And psychologists call that role conflict and role overload, just like too many roles to play. And when the roles you play are kind of in conflict with each other. And with the the posting, the pictures, the the Snapchat, uh, all the 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 way we project ourselves these days, it creates. You talk about how much self doubt it it creates in growing young women. Well, I think it can create self doubt, right? I mean, I think one of the one of the messages of this book is that it's very important for parents to adopt a more balanced perspective about social media with their kids. In fact, if you take a really hard line, like a black and white, you know, this is a bad thing for you um, position, you're actually much more likely to lose your kid in terms of them talking to you about social media. Um, You're also, research tells us, more likely to have a kid who might act out and do things that neither of you is particularly proud of. So it's really Mm -hmm. important to take a more balanced standpoint and to say, and this again comes from research, that it's not using social media that makes you unhappy. It's how you use it. And so, for example, one thing we know is that individuals, adults and young people who both produce social media and consume it, by which I mean like you post it, you post something, but you also like other people's posts, those people tend to have a much more balanced relationship to what's happening online. They're getting nice feedback, but they're also looking at other images. They tend to be happier than the people who are only Uh, consuming, only looking and liking other people's pictures, that's when you tend to feel more insecure. Mm -hmm. How do you recommend parents give this information to their kids? Uh, Just in the way you said them, or does it need to be presented a little more delicately or from a backdoor perspective? Um, Well, I think that one of the good things parents can do in in presenting this is just to ask questions and be curious and be open-minded. Again, if you take a dark perspective or like a dark mindset to social media with your teenager, they're not going to be that excited to talk to you because they're kind of, they're going to assume that 
you already know the outcome of the conversation because you're not curious. So you kind of have to say, like, Mm -hmm. tell me about what you're doing online lately, like, and not in like a creepy, you know, uh, kind of micromanagey way, like, tell me what you're doing online so I can shut it down. But just like, tell me what you're into. Um, you know, show mm-hmm. me a video that you've been excited about, or like, I just want to know what you're, what's like floating your boat right now online. Tell me what you like about it. Um, you know, how does social media allow you to connect with people when you're so busy? Like, tell me what are some of the like most satisfying ways that you connect with people? And, you know, teenagers want to talk about it. It's just what they don't want to have to do is defend their use of social media and get into an us versus them mentality with parents. Yeah, that's very that's a great point. And I always talk about with my clients the Romeo and Juliet effect, right? So just tell peop tell an adolescent they can't do something and you're basically helping them want to do it more, right? So I like this approach of questioning and asking. Yeah, and I have a 6-year-old and I'm pretty sure that's true for her. Like I think that's the essence of children, which is they are trying to assert mm-hmm. their will. I mean, I have actually said my one time my kid recently said to me, why are you just always telling me what to do? And it really shook me. And I was like, you know what? That sucks. Like, it really sucks to be always told what to do. And I really tried to put myself in her position and be like, you know what? And I thought, I just sort of talked to myself like, mom, dial it back. Because the more you Mm -hmm. take away her autonomy, the more she's going to resist. And so certainly, you know, opposition to authority figures is a hallmark of adolescent development. At the same time, I do think that's in many ways the essence of the parent-child relationship is this constant negotiation of their will versus our will and how they grow their own autonomy when we are trying to help them grow into people that are, you know, as I like to say about my daughter, like not savage, like an actual human being who can function Mm -hmm. in society. Totally. Um, One of the other topics, which was um, just tough to hear. I mean, I want to tell the listeners that that one of the many just enlightening components of the book is listening to the words of real people describe their experience. And, And just thinking about hearing about the pressures of body image and body shaming and um, how you write about girls and women joining on, quote, fat talk, right? And say a little bit about that because I don't don't think you can – it's so hard to raise a daughter these days and not have to address this head on with what girls are constantly being bombarded with about um, body. Sure. I mean, fat talk is kind of a ritualized way of putting your own body and appearance down. So it also has to do with like talking about other people's bodies or what you've eaten or what other people are eating. So it usually sounds like, oh my God, you know, my butt's so big or I'm so fat or like I can't wear those pants or, you know, look at her body and it's so much better than mine. And again, it's very ritualized in the sense that a lot of girls learn that this is both part of what you're supposed to do in order to be a humble person, right? Which is expected, very much expected of the quote unquote good girl is not to be too conceited or to think too highly of themselves, but it's also a way to connect with other girls and get attention and to some degree acceptance. Um, This is something that girls just do as a way to kind of 
signal that they're all part of the same group. So this therefore makes it a really tough nut to crack, right? Because what I'm saying is the culture has told girls to do this, their peers are telling them to do this. And so one of the best things we get to do as parents is just not model that behavior. That means fathers not talking about their daughter's appearance or the appearance of other females and moms. And this is very important for moms, not putting your own body down in front of your daughter, not talking about how you feel or look disgusting or how you ate too much or you didn't, you know, you were good today. And so you get to eat whatever you want. Like those kinds of things get really quickly internalized by girls. And because the person that they most respect and care about is doing it. So it's another signal that this is okay to do. So what do we do about that? Well, I think we, um, I mean, as I said, we have to stop saying it ourselves because research shows that an enormous percentage of adult women engage in fat talk. So we, and becoming conscious of our own habits isn't easy. I mean, if you're a listener to this podcast and you're not sure if you even do this, ask someone close to you, you know, do you hear me saying negative things about my own appearance? So that's really critical. And, and, Truly, I mean, you can't really tell girls to stop doing it if it's something that you do yourself. So that's the number one thing. Um, And then I would just say, secondly, if you hear your daughter and her friends talking about how awful they look, call it out and say that, you know, Mm -hmm. their bodies are strong and healthy and there to serve their goals and are not there to be looked at or to be... um, serve other people's goals, which is so often how girls begin to relate to their bodies is how do I look for other people instead of what purpose or function is my body serving for me? Mm -hmm. And I want to repeat that because that is really important is how does my body serve my goals and not other people's goals? Uh, That's a really important way of looking at it. So with body image, it, it partially relates to another important topic you take on about perfectionism which, of course, cuts through all domains of, uh, of being for many people. So what did you see in your research and what have you seen in your teaching with this, as you call, the cult of effortless perfection? Sure. Well, that effortless perfection is a phenomenon that was um, initially observed almost 20 years ago at Duke University, which I, I talk about, but increasingly has been not observed just on college campuses, but also in high schools. And it is the belief among many young people that, you know, not only do I have to excel in every area of my life, but I have to do it while making it look effortless. I have to do it while making it look like I don't need help, like I'm not trying mm-hmm. that hard, like I'm not that stressed out. And so I think what this does is it exacerbates the existing stress and anxiety that is already permeating the lives of high school and college students in the sense that everybody knows they're working hard, but nobody feels like they can talk about it. Yeah. And, um, I was uh, thinking about one of the quotes that really stuck with me, and I'm going to paraphrase this from one of the um, people you interviewed, was imagine the best version of yourself and then be better than that. Right. I mean, I think um, the girl that you're thinking about was talking about how she only hates herself in relation to um, to other people because it's like she's constantly feeling like who she is isn't enough. Um, and I think that sense of of how, of not feeling like you are okay as you are, feeling that you always have to be in constant motion trying to improve yourself in whatever domain, whether we're talking about social media or appearance or your grades or your test scores, that creates such a baseline level of distress 
um, and a lack of wellness that um, I do think that's a big part of why we're seeing so much unhappiness um, among our young adults. And here we are as parents trying to raise our kids to be successful, happy, fulfilled adults in their future. And one of our main issues in Parent Footprint, one of our main um, rallying cries is, you know, our own self-awareness and being aware of who we are and what we want for our own kids is more important than necessarily the parenting tool um, or the enrichment activity that we are enrolling our child in to be successful. And you talk about um, the idea that we can't give our children what we don't have ourselves. Right. Well, I do think, you know, as someone who works in the parenting world, I've always been really confused by how little parenting literature asks parents to look at their own baggage. I mean, I think so often parenting books are just like, here, you know, say this to your kid or do this for your kid or, you know, get this toy or whatever, as opposed to asking parents to reflect on, you know, what are your values around achievement? Or, you know, are you a perfectionist? How do you react when you make a mistake? Where did you learn how to react like that? You know, because the reality is we import and impose so much of our earliest experiences as children uh, onto our own children. And so I am a big believer and certainly a practitioner um, of making sure that you spend a lot of time reflecting on your own limits before you get involved in managing your child's. That is so important and so well said. And, you know, we need to acknowledge it takes a lot of courage for parents to look at their own stuff, their own baggage. And it's it's easier to listen to someone talk, to listen to a webinar, to to read a book. And I just encourage everyone, as you're saying, is look at ourselves and how we may be contributing to any of the challenges we're seeing in our kids. Of course, not intentionally, but what can we do with ourselves that will benefit our kids? Exactly. And so in the book, there, is, there are some exercises to help parents do that. Um, and also because, and I think, you know, this is an important part of looking at your own baggage. Um, Dan Goleman, who wrote the book Emotional Intelligence, he wrote in that book, you know, you have to have your feelings or your feelings will have you. Meaning if you're not in control of, or at least aware of what is going on inside of you, then they're very likely to start kind of driving the bus for you because you don't know what's going on for yourself. And so the more that you are aware of your own issues, the more you can regulate yourself as a parent because, you know, kids aren't getting anxious in a vacuum right now. Kids are anxious because they are um, often downloading their their parents' anxiety. And so parents also have to learn to regulate their strongest feelings, which is not a fun part of parenting, but it is part of what we owe our children so that they can negotiate or navigate their challenges without bearing the burden of our own fears. Right. And you just hit the nail on the head of what I was thinking about, our own fears and our own anxieties and how much that impacts what we say and do. And -hmm. just to let all of you know how human uh, all of us are, even those in the field, I had a situation probably about two weeks ago where I was dealing with one of my children on a difficult situation. And because of my own anxiety about how something was going to play out, 
I could not believe the thing that I said was probably the worst thing that I could have said to increase my child's anxiety when I was my ultimate goal was to reduce the anxiety. And it was all from my how I was feeling about the situation. And so I just want to say this stuff is not easy when we're dealing with the difficult stuff with our kids that we're worrying about them. No. And I do think it requires a lot of daily attention to how are we feeling so that we can, again, you know, control ourselves and also talk to our kids. I mean, even when you're feeling unhappy about something as a parent, it's much better to share that with your child so that they understand. Because it's not like our kids don't notice when we're unhappy. I mean, of course they do. And when we don't talk about how we're feeling or our own, we don't um, bring them into an awareness of, of what's going on for us, they can often blame themselves and think, well, maybe my parents upset mm-hmm. because of something I did. So um, the more parents spend time connecting with their own internal life, that's just going to make you such a better parent because it will just allow you to connect with your child in much more authentic ways, which by the way, you know, teenagers really appreciate authenticity from the adults around them. They don't like being BSed in any way. They've got a great detector for that. Right. And um, to close off that story, um, my this child uh, said to me, uh, had the wherewithal to say to me after um, I had upset this person that I'm really surprised that you would say what you just said in this situation right now. <laughs> and the first thing I said was, you are so right. I mm-hmm. totally blew it. And that was about me. And that was not about you. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I totally agree with the authenticity. And we're, we're going to make mistakes. Yeah, and I think, too, that our kids need to see us apologizing, too, right? That's teaching Mm -hmm. them how to do the same. When you teach kids that apology is an important part of connection and relationship um, and, you know, conflict resolution, you're giving them permission and the words to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And as as we spend a lot of time with parents and know parents um, are trying to do the best they can and are um, unfortunately often stressed out. I think this um, other topic that I would like us to address is it works both for parents and for our kids, which is how do we turn self-criticism into self-compassion? I think we all need some of this. Sure. I mean, um, you know, generally speaking, most of us tend to be a lot kinder to other people than we are to ourselves. So it's not that we don't have the capacity to be kind to ourselves. It's that we are so often, you know, showing other people more grace than we are showing ourselves. So I think one of the first questions to ask yourself is, you know, is there a difference between how you respond to someone you love who's in distress or criticizing themselves or facing a setback? Is there a difference between that and how you respond to yourself? And then the next question then is, you know, well, how might you respond to yourself differently using some of the kindness that you share with others? Many of us think that if we're not self-critical, that we'll, we'll lose our motivation that we won't want to work, that we'll somehow become lazy if we're not beating ourselves mm-hmm. up. But, you know, part of what we know is that self-criticism actually elevates our anxiety and it doesn't make us productive. It tends to make us overthink and ruminate, which diminishes our problem-solving skills. So actually, if you can be kind to yourself, it doesn't mean you're not taking responsibility for whatever's bothering you. You're actually going to be more effective and a lot less anxious and stressed out. Yes. Did you hear that, everyone? Less anxious and stressed out. 
Give yourself some compassion, the same compassion you would give someone you love. Okay, we're winding down. We're getting close. So, Rachel, I have to ask you. I have two questions for you. The, the second to last question is, if parents who are listening could do one thing, one thing to help their girls move beyond impossible standards of success and live happy and fulfilling lives, what is that one thing you would recommend? I would say get to know the practice of self-compassion. And when you make mistakes in front of your child, could be losing your keys or burning dinner or you know getting somewhere late, don't beat yourself up in front of them. Don't say, I'm such an mm-hmm. idiot or I'm so stupid. Practice self-kindness. Ask yourself in that moment, what would I tell someone I cared about who lost their keys or got lost? And then say that out loud in front of your child so that you're teaching them a different way to respond to a setback. That is absolutely invaluable. Yes. Show them, model for them self-compassion. Okay, it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Rachel, tell us of a time when you became aware of yourself as an individual or a parent and that new awareness had a positive impact on your child. Um, Wow, that's such a deep question. I, I have to say the thing that comes to mind, I'm not sure if this is the right way to answer it, but I have a distinct memory of my daughter I only have one child being an infant and looking at me with so much love and so much um, just completely unconditional connection. And I had this kind of weird moment where I thought, if this creature can love me this much, I must be really, I must be a really worthwhile person. And it's not that Hmm. I walked around thinking I wasn't worthwhile, but I I certainly suffered from some degree and still do of self-criticism. And when I was able to tap in to how much my daughter just absolutely adored me, it gave me a sense Hmm. of self-love. It gave me a kind of access to self-love that I had not had before. And I think, of course, that has made me a much better parent. That is a great parent footprint moment. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, what well, I'm smiling here is that the love that she showed you allowed you to increase your own self-love and compassion, which only benefits your daughter with um, how you are in the world as a result. Yeah, I'm like, if this awesome kid loves me this much, I must be pretty cool. <laughs> That's great. All right, everyone. The show has unfortunately come to a close. You have to read or listen to Rachel's book, Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Healthy, Happy, and Fulfilling Lives. I can tell you, we just scratched the surface on the show. There is so much powerful material in here, as well as wonderful uh, suggestions and exercises to help raise that child that you want to see grow and go forth in the future. Uh, Rachel, tell everyone where they can find uh, all the stuff you're doing. You can visit my website, rachelsimmons.com, and go to that website slash changemakers to join a very cool private Facebook group that I run for parents and educators. And you can buy my book anywhere books are sold. Yes, you can. Changemakers. I love it. We're making change. 
All right, everyone. Thanks for listening today. Check us out at the usual place, www.parentfootprint.com. Our Parent Footprint Awareness Training is designed to help you become more aware and parent with purpose and intention so you can raise the kind of person we talked about on the show today. Remember, be the person you want your child to be. Show them how to live. Have the courage to look at yourself. It's for you and it's for them. And as always, remember this guiding question. What footprint do you want to leave?